1: Welcome to the New Books Network. The existence of minorities has been an unavoidable reality of the creation of nation states that almost always have a dominant national group inscribed in their names. From this perspective, Germany is a country for Germans and Australia is a country for Australians. But there are invariably others who don't fit the heritage or the stereotype of German or Italian uh, or Australian or whatever the country might be. So how do we deal with the reality that minorities are a normal feature of basically all countries of the world? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Fernand de Varenne, who is the UN Special Rapporteur for Minority Issues. He's also currently serving as uh, a a visiting professor at the Université Catholique de Lyon in France and the Vitalitus Magnus University in Lithuania. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us today, Fernando Varenne.
0: Thank you very much, John. I'm delighted to be here with
1: you. So, as I mentioned in my introduction, um, minorities, I mean, obviously in some sense a technical term but minorities are an unavoidable element of the international landscape of states and countries so what what is the mandate of the u.n special rapporteur for minority issues what does it do
0: thank you very much Uh, the mandate is actually a mandate created by the united nations human rights council Uh, it is an elected position and the position is as an independent expert to deal with, on the one hand, um, issues of our allegations of violations of the human rights of minorities, which may occur anywhere in the world. So we have a bit of a, um, if you will, a diplomatic, almost investigative role to, uh, in relation to the violation of the human rights of minorities that has been assigned to us by the UN Human Rights Council. That's one half. As an independent expert, we also are asked to clarify certain areas of the application of the human rights of minorities. When we talk about international human rights, it can be quite general. So one has to realize that quite often what specific rights means in practice in relation to minorities or any other group is not always very, very clear or precise. Hence, that's one of our roles to clarify certain areas. For example, the use of a minority language in education to what extent does that right exist what does it impose on states and thirdly we have a, a awareness raising um a, a, a role to play with governments as to what are their obligations in terms of the rights of minorities and also with minorities themselves who may not understand what are their human rights in international law so a number of hats that we have
1: to right so how is a minority defined? I mean, one could slice up the population of the world in, in myriad ways, but surely there are limits to the notion of what a, what constitutes a minority. So, So, what groups are we actually talking about?
0: Thank you. That's actually a very important question because it's not always well understood. Under UN instruments, documents like uh, such as the UN Declaration on the Rights of Minorities, when we refer to minorities, we are referring to what is called national or ethnic, religious, and linguistic groups. And therefore, it's not any kind of category that can can be considered as a minority in international law. Blue-eyed people may be numerically a minority in most countries, but they are not considered to be a minority in the sense of national or ethnic religious and linguistic. So I think that's the best way to understand it. Uh, minority inside a country, less than half of the population in relation to their, well, let's say, religion or language. That's probably the simplest way to, to imagine these
1: different... Right. Groups. So there are groups roughly like the kinds of groups that are identified, let's say, in the Genocide Convention, Right.
0: Absolutely. And in fact, even though the Genocide Convention does not use the word minority specifically, it's quite clear that it, it refers to ethnic or religious group, for example, and therefore one can easily see that what was intended were in fact minority groups who tend to be the most vulnerable, if you will, or the targets of genocide, as history has shown us the genocide in the 20th century at the beginning of twenty-first that occurred or were attempted, all involved minorities, as
1: well. right? And and there was a, a pretty big fight uh, in the time of the creation of the Genocide Convention. Uh, over you know which groups would be included, and of course, political uh, minorities was one of the major kind of uh, political debates at the time. So, I mean, how would you say is the minority definition from your perspective satisfactory, or are there groups that are being left out that should be included, or and what was the wh- when did this uh, convention you know take place, and was it sort of a byproduct of the discussion of genocide, or?
0: Um, I I think it was recognized after the Second World War, during the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that there were segments of society, minorities that were extremely vulnerable. So the Genocide Convention, and by the way, the Genocide Convention was adopted even before the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which many people don't realize. Um, Even though the word minority was sometimes omitted because some governments are not comfortable with the the concept. Of minorities. They prefer to say we're all equal. Everyone is a citizen. Therefore, let's not talk about minorities. Um, but eventually, at the at, after the end of the Second World War, what occurred was that there was in the United Nations further work, starting a little bit with the Genocide Convention, but ultimately leading to treaties which actually did refer directly to the concept of minorities. Um, very quickly, Article Twenty Seven of the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights refers to ethnic, religious, and linguistic minorities as having certain human rights. So, uh, in a way, there was always a great deal of awareness, particularly after the Second World War, that in reality, minorities, including, for example, Jews, during, with the, in, in relation to the Holocaust, the Shoah, were a minority, were vulnerable, and this the United Nations system had to be founded on a rule which could protect and, to some degree, accommodate various... Uh, minority groups uh, I can talk about religion for example later on and why freedom of religion is an important human right for minorities for li- religious minorities but just very quickly though um, before the second world war there were minority treaties the need to protect minorities in order to achieve peace and stability was well recognized during the time of the League of Nations after the first world war and before the second world war so the concept has always been there. It's been formulated in different ways. There have been some misunderstandings as to what is involved and some reluctance, in fact, with some governments to acknowledge this. But this is one of the greatest challenges that we still have to avoid conflict, to avoid genocide, to avoid situations of even crimes against humanity, which we are still seeing being per- perpetrated uh mainly so often targeting minorities
1: right so the uh you know the mandate for this u.n special rapporteur and the whole idea of the protection of minorities as you say had a prehistory uh in the league of nations um that came out of the collapse of the european land empires after world war one and uh the emergence of all these groups that had you know Complicated relationships to the states that emerged, uh, and of course, you know, you've mentioned the Holocaust. You know, from one perspective, these minority protections didn't work out very well. So, I wonder how you would say the UN uh, approach to minorities has perhaps improved on what happened in the interwar period.
0: Um, I think there was an improvement in the nineteen early nineteen nineties, uh, late nineteen eighties you might remember during the fall at the time of the fall of the former soviet union also the uh the yugoslavia uh, breaking up there was a great uh, great number of uh violent conflicts in different parts of especially eastern europe central asia but also other parts of the world as a matter of fact where you had minorities in fact uh, with a significant grievances uh, a large number of separat- separatist uh, movements, mainly involving minorities, in fact, uh, in these areas, in these regions. And at the time, the United. this is when the United Nations developed the uh, Declaration on the Rights of Persons Belonging to National or Ethnic, Religious and Linguistic Minorities. So there was a context where the United Nations de- developed a further tool, if you will, further instrument, on the one hand to protect their rights, the human rights of minorities better, but on the other hand, actually is a tool for conflict prevention in that per- particular historical juncture. But By the way, it's no accident that at the same period you had uh, the organi- OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the creation of the, p- the position of High Commissioner on National Minorities as a conflict prevention tool. That's specifically what that position is. It's also exactly the same period when at the Council of Europe, they developed treaties, legal documents, such as the Framework Convention uh, for the Protection of National Minorities. So the United Nations and other regional organizations developed quite a number of tools, mechanisms, even treaties to better protect minorities and their rights in order to achieve peace in a particularly unstable period of history. Um, and so in that sense, we did more, if you will, at the United Nations, but as you may know, a declaration is not a binding document. It's not a treaty, it's not a legal instrument, and therefore it's quite weak. And unfortunately, I think what had been initi- initiated in the 1990s didn't go far enough, um, was not very strong. And today, we, I think we're seeing the consequences of that, if um, I would suggest to you, and I think the data demonstrates it we are having extremely uh, challenging period including an increase of conflicts most of them are internal most of them involve in fact minorities again even though it's not always acknowledged and we now have new challenges such as the rise of hate speech in social media and even even incitement to violence even incitement to genocide is on the increase and where we don't seem to have the, the tools to be able to tackle this effectively
1: Right. I mean, it seems that what happened in the post World War II period was that uh, interstate uh, conflict was seriously tamped down. It was, you know, regarded as totally unacceptable until very recently uh, to, you know, uh, invade somebody else's territory and try to take part of that territory, take over somebody else's sovereignty, and the result—or not the result, perhaps—but the uh, at the same time there was this shift to interstate violence, as you have just alluded to, and so I think you know that's been—I mean, insofar as Steven Pinker may be correct. Uh, arguing that there's been this decline of violence. Um, it has partially to do with the fact that, you know, there's been a shift away from interstate wars with lots of munitions and a shift towards intrastate or civil wars, basically, uh, that have, you know, involved relatively less well-armed, uh, you know, uh, combatants, so to speak. So uh, I suppose that might be seen as a failing of the, you know, minority uh protection regime but at the same time it's you know better on the whole as we're seeing in ukraine uh for these conflicts to be smaller and more uh, more contained um but do you see the relationship between the sort of minority protections that the un provides and Violence. I mean, again, I don't want to blame, you know, these interstate uh, conflicts on the minority protection regime, but there must be some relationship between those two phenomena.
0: Well, thank you. I would suggest that there are uh, certain uh, connections to be made. Uh, let's let's be clear, even though the total number of victims of, of, of people killed in conflict may seem historically not as high as it was during the Second World War. Keep in mind that uh, we currently have the largest number of internally displaced people in human history currently in the world. Keep in mind that we have millions of individuals who are are living in extremely difficult conditions in conflict areas such as Yemen, Syria, Ethiopia, and South South Sudan. Keep in mind that, in fact, we do have a, a highest, I think, the highest number of stateless people in human history, and that is actually apparently increasing by millions because of situations where minorities are denied citizenship or, and are susceptible to denial of citizenship. Currently in India, where in Assam, we may be seeing around 2 million people uh, not being recognized as citizenship. We therefore have in the world, I think, an extremely dark period of instability where you have very, very large numbers of refugees, displaced people, stateless people. And in most of these, in fact, you have these displaced people are, are individuals uh, that are connected to conflicts, domestic conflicts. Many of them, not all of them, but most of them, I would say, it seems to, data seems to prove, come from uh, countries that are wracked by violence, where minorities are either the targets or are, are, are have... Um, Separatist uh, movements. We forget, for example, for example, that Yemen. The conflict, to a large degree, has a religious division uh, as a in the background for that conflict between Shia minority and Sunni majorities. And so, I think it would be remiss to assume that what we are experiencing in the world is better than it was in the middle of the 20th century. I would suggest that, in fact, it is heading in a very troubled and violent period because of the stateless, very large number of stateless people, very large number of displaced people, very large number of individuals actually um, hungry, not having access to education, being essentially uh, rightless, having no rights, and actually not having access to the most basic of, uh, of, of areas such as care and food. And so much of that, is connected to instability linked to the inability, I think, of the international community to address what are many of the root causes, a feeling from minorities that they are excluded, that they have to sometimes revert to violence in order to have their rights protected and their life uh, protected even. Uh, Think of the Rohingya also in Myanmar, which I should have mentioned also earlier. And so we may not have the same scale of death on the field, but if you look at other uh, markers, other uh, air, uh, data areas, such as a na- number of stateless, displaced, uh, victims, in fact, of uh, various atrocities, we are in need to address these, these areas where minorities specifically seem to be the main target. In a context, very quick comment, in a context of rising, I guess we could call it Majoritarian nationalism. A lot of it is actually also, I would say, not a minority uh, problem. It's a majority problem in many of the cases that I've described. Think of the Rohingya. Think of the report on the Xinjiang, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang in China. Think of the situations of the Shia in uh, in um, in Yemen, and also of the Tigrayans in Ethiopia, for example.
1: Right. So some of this one might uh, suggest is a product of the deterioration uh, in the sort of democratic cast of the world in recent decades i mean there's a lot of writing that's been done about the decline the relative decline of democracies and the rise of more authoritarian kinds of government and I mean, it seems obvious to me that there's a relationship between, uh, you know, those kinds of government and the treatment of minorities, but I'd be curious, you know, how, how you would sort of assess that. I mean, I'm naively going to take for granted that it's better off if you're, you're better off as a minority in a democracy than you are in an authoritarian society. But that's in some sense true of all the people in those societies. So how would you, you know, uh, address that relationship?
0: Uh, Thank you. Yes, I think when you have a democracy, there is space for differences, differences of opinion, but also differences of background. And in an ideal democracy, you have a democracy that accepts, acknowledges, and embraces difference rather than looks at it as a threat, if you will. Unfortunately, it's not always the case. You have some democracies where you can have a, a government that is more nationalistic and exclusionary. Um, and without giving a, going into any examples, I think this is the danger where you which may occur when you have governments saying the country to the people, but the people actually only have one language, one religion, or one culture. And I think this is the unfortunate danger or the, the threat that we are seeing in a number of democracies where the government in place begins to get uh, to absorb a certain tone a tone that reflects really mainly and almost only the majority like majority religious group majority linguistic or cultural entity um, and that is the problem I think now it's whether it's a democracy or even a North authoritarian regime we are seeing more and more governments and regimes uh, becoming more and more nationalistic and by definition very often they come they become more and more exclusionary of minorities which are too different or which might be instrumentalized uh, by majoritarian politicians as a threat and I, I think we all know that this is a common uh, theme that we find in in many regimes so unfortunately we are if you if you like to look at history and its lessons there have been uh, certainly, since the 19th century, various periods of increased nationalism, which where minorities actually are at the receiving end, are are suppressed or repressed, and this is unfortunately, I think, around the world, one of those periods of a nationalism which is actually less tolerant of minorities. Not everywhere, but in you know in quite a significant number of, of
1: countries. Right. I mean, in 1848, that was regarded in many ways as a as a progressive development. Right. The uh, the prison house of peoples was being broken out of during the springtime spring of peoples. The folk are fooling in, in German. Uh, but now we tend to be more skeptical about this for the kinds of reasons that you've just suggested. And uh, I guess I might ask you, since you've, you know, uh, posited that this is happening, I mean, why do you think it's happening? Why do you think there is this upsurge in nationalism not just in the United States and uh, Europe, but really around the world?
0: Very good question. And if I knew the answer, I think I would be able to get quite a reward for that. But let me answer it this way. We are living in a very troubled time. There are many upheavals, including the environment, including the finances, the economy, employment. Um, And in this context of very significant upheavals, you have many segments of society uh, who feel insecure and threatened. And history shows us that in those conditions, it is easy for populist politicians to instrumentalize, to identify someone to blame, to scapegoat, as a matter of fact. And they will quite often scapegoat minorities, instrumentalize these fears Focus them, if you will, on a certain minority groups and claim that these minorities are disloyal or criminal. They are a threat or they actually have a some kind of conspiracy to dominate the real nation, the majority population. And this populist nationalism is an easy answer to complex changes and upheavals. And because in my, in my opinion, the current uh, environment around us in the world, political, environmental, economic, is so disturbing and uncertain that individuals are actually following those that have the easiest, clearest answers. And quite often those answers are the, the, this minority is to blame. This is, these are the criminals. These are the ones who want to invade us or to crush us. We've seen that before the Second World War, uh, to be very honest. Today, the situation is quite different, but we are seeing um, similar sounds as to what occurred in the Second World War. We're seeing it, and I think a uh, number of special rapporteurs have pointed out the United Nations. We're seeing that with growing intolerance against uh, Muslims, uh, uh, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism is also in the We're seeing on the increase. We're seeing it with the targeting of the Rohingya in Myanmar, the the labeling of Latinos, for example, in the United States as criminals, and so on. Unfortunately, some politicians think this works, and they, they are using it right now.
1: Right. So, I mean, this reminds me since in part because you're a a Canadian by origin, uh, I'm sort of thinking about multiculturalism as an idea, which really basically was uh, originated in Canada uh, as a way of uh, persuading the Quebecois that they could stay within the Canadian Federation without being oppressed and uh, that made a big difference i think for a while and indeed uh, multiculturalism became you know the sort of uh, approach du jour if you like for a number of years uh, about how to address these kinds of problems of minority separation and inclusion Uh, There was a book, uh, you know, I'm reminded there was a book that came out, I don't know, maybe it's 20 years ago now, uh, called We Are All Multiculturalists Now. Uh, I'm not sure how many people would say that now, but there were in many ways, many, I mean, certainly the originator, Will Kimlicka, uh, of the idea, or at least I I regard him as the uh, originator, you know, saw this not as a... uh, a route to uh, balkanization, as it was sometimes perceived, for example, in the United States, but as a as a route to greater integration. And I guess I, you know, be curious to hear you talk about where you think that idea is now. I mean, in the face of growing nationalism, is anybody talking about that anymore? I don't really hear it, but I'm curious what you would say. Yes, I
0: think what is, uh, could be useful is to uh, remember that Canada is not, uh, is that, does not stand alone in this area. There, In fact, once you start looking in different parts of the world, you realize that there are a number of states, a number of countries that have adopted similar approaches, not identical. Uh, one of the examples I'd like to, to mention is Switzerland. Switzerland has four official languages. It is a highly decentralized country in different in a large number of cantons, but the cantons essentially reflect the cultural linguistic uh, background or population of the, the different parts of the country. Um, Switzerland, with this kind of, if you will, multicultural uh, state, is has been the most one of the most stable countries in Europe. I think we tend to forget that that's the reason or one of the reasons is. It has been so stable is the fact that the its structures of the state reflects the reality of the ground the multicultural reality of the ground with four official languages we tend to forget that countries like singapore uh, singapore for example the public holidays reflect all of the major religions in in singapore so you have uh, you have buddhist uh, hindu uh, muslim and christian holidays that are public days of rest also to reflect this religious diversity. Um, We could go on. There are countries like Mauritius uh, off the coast of Africa, which I think not many people will know. is actually a very multicultural state in the way it functions. There are areas like Italy. We tend to believe that Italy is only made up of Italian-speaking people, but in fact, there are a number of linguistic minorities, and they have various autonomy regimes also in place, like in South Tyrol. Or you have a german-speaking minority which works extremely well uh, a little bit like canada there was the beginning of a separatist a violent separatist movement in the 1950s there were soldiers and police officers that were assassinated by separatist german-speaking minority separatists they obtained autonomy and it is today one of the most stable and actually wealthiest parts of italy uh, so one can go there, and I think you can see that there is, in reality, quite a few multicultural countries in the world. And quite often, when this these various forms of accommodation of the diversity of the country reflects the reality on the ground, what you have is, in fact, a quite stable state. Um, not everyone agrees with this approach. Some have believed that one country, one nation, is, must be made of one people with only one language, sometimes even only one religion. I think history shows that the attempt to force everyone to fit into the same uh, mold is more a cause of instability than there is a more multicultural approach that reflects reality.
1: That, that's the way I would respond. Right. So, I mean, the Switzerland example is a very interesting one, but one of the f- characteristics of Switzerland, of course, is the fact that it's a neutral and to some degree that strikes me as expanding the space, so to speak, for the acceptance of, you know, decentralization and, uh, and cultural, whatever, diversity. Uh, and I wonder how easily that is done in a context in which, you know, one has more, uh, more of a military role sort of in, in the world. Uh, I don't know if that makes any sense, but Switzerland is such a fantastic place in so many ways. Uh, but, you know, the men there do have to carry out military service, but the country, I mean, it's basically def- purely defensive. They're, uh, you know, a neutral power from, from way back. And uh, that seems to me to sort of shape the opportunity structure here. Yeah, John,
0: uh, thanks for that. Indeed, of course, uh, the, each country is different. Uh, all the examples that I pointed out have uh, very different uh, approaches in history and whatnot. On the other hand, I think there are also plenty of other examples where you have states that are not neutral, if you will, not militarily neutral, where you have various multicultural approaches. I, I could have mentioned Finland, where you have two official languages, but also an indigenous population with certain rights and that the way this the state is created the the structures of the state reflect its multicultural background in fact with finnish majority swedish speaking majority autonomy arrangements also for certain parts of finland and the Sami uh, indigenous populations which also within this co- multicultural context have special arrangements uh special measures in place um finland has not always been neutral. It has a, as you will know, it has actually had a very successful military uh, force that was able to resist during the Second World War uh, or immediately after that, or I'm sorry, after the first World War, they were ab- able to resist the attempts that the uh, Soviet or R- Russian Empire at the time to keep them within the, the, their sphere of inter- of uh, influence. So there are plenty of others. Uh, yes, Switzerland is quite unique. So is Singapore in different ways and, and all of the right. others. But I think the fundamental lesson there is that when you actually have a, a structures of the state that reflects the reality of the population on the ground and its diversity, and is democratic in representing, in fact, this diversity, you're much more able to have, in my opinion, I think the evidence is there, a stable and just society.
1: Fascinating. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. This has been a fascinating conversation and obviously many, many varieties of minority contexts and relationships and and approaches. And uh, it sounds like you have your hands full with the job of UN Special Rapporteur for Minority Issues. So I want to thank Fernand de Varenne for sharing his insights on the situation of minorities around the world today. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank uh, Osvaldo Mina Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Thank you, John.
0: Merci. Au revoir. Hasta luego.